You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at the Doctor Who's 60th anniversary special number two, The Wild Blue Yonder. Or actually, I just think Wild Blue Yonder. I don't think there's a the there. I think you're right. Before we get going, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping uh, because it's very rare that a Fusion Patrol episode and its recording and its release are nearly contemporaneous. So um, I just wanted to say that uh, you can find out more about this on FusionPatrol.com. I've started a weekly, hopefully, blog post called uh, Patrolling Beyond Fusion where it's kind of behind the scenes and you can kind of get some other thoughts on what's going on around here. And it's also an opportunity to get some thoughts in on some of the shows as we're recording them rather than after, after you've heard what we had to say. So it'd be thoughts about the shows, wouldn't it? But, uh, so that's at fusionpatrol.com. Uh, we're also now on the Fediverse, which you probably hear called Mastodon. If you know what that is, you know where it is and you can find us at, at podcast at fusionpatrol.com and all our posts and stuff will be there and and we're still getting that worked out but it's live and it's it's a thing and the last thing is a correction i believe that on the last episode i believe we did mention that i thought i thought that the name of the christmas special was church of ruby rose i got that in all good faith off the internet uh through someone who got it through disney plus it has now been announced. It is Christmas Day, and it is the church on Ruby Road, not Church of Ruby Rose, which just thankfully, because I was just thinking, geez, RTD, cut it out with the Rose stuff. Anyway, so let's get on with the episode, Wild Blue Yonder. Episode synopsis. Careening out of control due to the TARDIS's stupid design choice of a coffee maker on the console and Donna's gross ineptitude, the TARDIS crash lands on a spacecraft in the middle of nothing. The spaceship is seemingly empty, yet the TARDIS's HADS system nonetheless senses danger and displaces itself until the danger is over, leaving the Doctor and Donna stranded. Although the ship's systems confirm that there are no life forms aboard, the Doctor and Donna meet doppelgangers of themselves. These are formless not-things from the nothingness beyond the edge of the universe. Their plan, duplicate the Doctor and Donna perfectly, then take possession of the TARDIS, where they shall journey into the universe and be problematic, presumably. The Doctor discovers the pilot of the ship killed herself three years ago, but why? And why is the ship in the middle of a very, very slow countdown? When the Doctor figures that out, it's time to speed up the countdown to the self-destruction of the ship, destroying the not-things in the process. The TARDIS returns in the nick of time and saves the Doctor and Donna. They return to Earth to find Wilf waiting at a world gone bad. And I feel that synopsis may have been longer than it needed to be. Just... So, Wild Blue Yonder, were you as disappointed as I was? Well, I wasn't expecting the 14 Doctors. Um, I wasn't even hoping for the 14 Doctors. So, I'm guessing I probably wasn't. Oh, no, 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 no. I I wasn't disappointed because it wasn't the 14 Doctors. (laughs) I was just disappointed because this felt like, oh, we've got 13 episodes and we need a couple fillers in the middle. And this is it. And instead, we only have three episodes with with these two, and we didn't need a filler. That's why I'm disappointed. I like filler, and I have been trying to puzzle why I found this episode unsatisfying. I didn't hate it, but... I didn't hate it. I, I guess I was disappointed by it, and I think part of that is a sense that this... It, it is partly a sense that this kind of 60th anniversary thing should, I guess, have a bit more drive to it and that RTD has somehow created a 
a mini season where you know you've got the opening episode with all the plot and then you've got the episodes in the middle of the season where they go off and do things and then the kind of finale where you draw together the the plots the arc strands that have been chuntering along uh, in the background of the of the episodes in the middle except the episodes in the middle are one episode and it's this episode yep. and it doesn't really seem to have anything to do with the episodes either side of it and that that that's in the middle of a series i think i would enjoy this a bit more i've got a caveat about that but i but i think i would but in this position it 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 makes it it makes it more problematic it it actually reminded me a bit of um i don't know if you remember uh in in big finishes audio series with uh, charlie pollard traveling with paul McGann's doctor mm-hmm. and um towards the end of that series there's I, I don't want to give any spoilers to those who haven't heard it but there's quite a major development in a trilogy that begins with patient zero uh paper cuts and then wild blue yonder finish out that trilogy and paper cuts is literally just treading water there's nothing wrong with the story but i cannot listen to it and enjoy it because of the aspects of the trilogy that are in there but which don't get developed did you say wild blue yonder yonder was the third episode of that I did say Wild Blue Yonder, but I didn't mean Wild Blue Yonder. I mean, oh, Wild Blue. It's not. It's not even Wild, is it? It's Blue Planet. Okay, uh, something Blue Planet. Sorry, I'm. I'm now. The fact that Wild Blue Yonder has got into my head. I'm. I'm also confused by the fact that the Doctor started going on about the Wide Blue Yonder in the Underwater Menace. So, I'm. I'm a bit muddled. <laughs> well, you're not the only one. Uh, yeah, I. I. I really, I just feel kind of cheated. I, I feel like this was a squandered episode. It's not that it's bad. Um, I, I have some things about it. I have caveats, at, as you do, that I am deeply concerned about. They were, they didn't make hate it or anything. But, you know, when I watched Star Beast, I sat down and I said, I'm going to watch this and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm not going to take notes. And I did. And that was on you know, Saturday. And then on Sunday... Now I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch this and I'm going to take notes. And I watched it and I took notes. And so that we could talk on Monday. Now, in this case, this one came out on Saturday. I sat down to enjoy it, not going to take notes. When I got to the end of it, I said, I should have taken notes. And I hastily jotted down my notes because I'm not going to watch it again. It just wasn't worth watching again now. That's interesting because I I did not feel like watching it again. And when I when I rewatch Patient uh, Patient Zero, God, I really am getting confused. Star um, Beast, I'm I'm my brain is congested. When I watched the Star Beast, thank you. I I wanted to watch it again. I I was I was keen to you know I I'd, I'd enjoyed watching it. There were a lot of strands in there. I was keen to think about what I'd seen, kind of with my expectations adjusted, having waited a whole year for this thing to come along. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure my expectations of this one were, but I do think that in some sense, this whole 60th anniversary thing, my expectations were not just that we would get a miniature version of the, what would it be, 2008 season, which is kind of what this feels like. <laughs> it's almost like there has been no there has been no development and i know it's a bit odd to say that when it explicitly mentions the flux and the timeless child stuff but i think one of the things about actual genuine filler episodes are that when you're in the process of uh, watching a, a kind of on an ongoing run of a show you've maybe got a new doctor or you've got a new companion or a new doctor companion pairing and part of what you're watching is how do these people interact with each other and what's you know what's this new companion like or what's what what's the doctor's character now these little things come out in little drips and drabs and it's quite um i think i I think it's a more important important part of watching those filler episodes than I had previously realized because watching this it's like 
because it's the Doctor and Donna and we've kind of had their story and we know all about them. Mm -hmm. And even even in terms of kind of filling in the missing 15 years, it's kind of pretty much Donna info-dumped all of that in the Star Beast. And, well, we know what happened to the Doctor in the missing years because we've been watching the show. Thousands of years, yeah. So there isn't a lot going on between... I, I don't know if I'll watch this again, you know, in a, a few months' time or whatever and feel I've I've misjudged it, but it, it feels like there isn't a lot going on between the characters. Does that seem odd? Yeah, it seems exactly how I interpreted it. I mean, they were just, yeah, okay, so they were a little comfortable with each other and they were having a little bit of talk-talk, but which, you know, is not necessarily bad. But I, I tell you what, the other thing about this episode that really was weird to me is that during the first i don't know 10 15 minutes once they started exploring the ship i thought there's a lot of this is really well constructed to build tension and what the heck is going on in this ship i definitely was like drawn into the mystery the problem was as it kept going on and on and on could no longer hold that and so it, it was a it was a letdown within itself as well because it felt like it had really good promise up front it, and then it 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 didn't deliver and it, the other thing that i'll just say that is a strike against this episode to me is that this show well first off let's just say this was not the episode to lead number two when you're trying to introduce doctor who to a whole new audience right? For Disney worldwide. It's like, number one was a pretty darn good episode. Number two, eh. So not, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to definitely was... disagree with that. You, because you don't I've think been... that the first one was any good either? <laughs> like for introducing, no, I, I mean, I, 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 I thought the first one was great and I have been watching both of these with not wheeze and their reaction is much more positive than mine. Okay. Including to this episode. So, I I think there is a strong element of our expectations around this. And I think if you don't know the characters, if you don't know the Doctor and Donna, maybe some of what, the, the, you know, those interactions there are partly to kind of reintroduce all of that stuff to the, to the audience. The problem, I think, is that doesn't serve two masters very well because, you know, you've got to do that for the new audience, but the old audience, they already know the Doctor and Donna. And the only the only reward you're getting from this is the kind of nostalgia hit that you know to be fair is quite satisfying but it is also something i could get by just putting on any of my dvds from that year's episodes there is a movie well this is a tangent but okay we'll go with it there is a movie that i will probably never go see uh despite the fact that when i heard the premise of it i really was kind of like that that appeals to something that bothers the heck out of me about uh, uh, adventure movies, let's say. And that is, I guess it's David Duchovny and Meg Ryan. I don't know the name of the film, but they're two ex-lovers who are stranded in the airport after they've been broken up for 30 years or something. And they've got lives and they meet, they meet up and discuss the past and what might have been and what wasn't was and and whatnot. And that itself doesn't exactly appeal to me. What I hate is adventure films where two people bump into each other, fall in love in the end of the film. You know, they live happily ever after. And I would love to see any of those couples 30 years later because you know they didn't. And then they went on to have lives. And I, I like the concept of catching up. And so I guess maybe for viewers who did not watch the old Doctor Who, maybe this sort of the Doctor and Donna old friends getting back together and kind of reminiscing a little bit uh, might work. I, I don't know. It didn't exactly work for me, but okay, I'll I'll take the idea that that maybe the concept go. Now, what the other part that I wanted to say that this film, this episode did confirm my worst fears about Disney and the money. And that is, I absolutely detest the distorting, blobby blob, morphy morph, CG crap in this and any film. I just think it, no matter how well they do it, I think it looks terrible. 
And it just looks like you're throwing money at the screen to no good effect. And it's like, oh, oh, they episode two and they're already going to one of my pet peeves. <laughs> like, so I didn't like that. But and and now I'm worried that they are going to be throwing FX at the story unnecessarily. But on the catching up with the old old characters who you've met before i i i like that i mean i i enjoyed it in power of the doctor where we got to see ace and tegan even though i felt that there was certain gratuitous writing over all this big finished stuff and i did i mean i did quite like the fact that in the star beast we got to catch up with what had happened to donna over the last 15 years it's just i guess this feels more more like something like a, a reset and it's partly because it is Russell T. Davis doing it, he's he's just picked up his own story from back then, and he's kind of slid back into where I, it's what Catherine Tate has described as getting the band back together again. It is it yeah. is like you know the these bands that go round and they know that the audiences just want to hear them play the classic material, so that's what they do, and. I, I kind of not going to retread the old ground. I talked about how this kind of felt a bit big finishy last time, but just yep. on that, I, I, because I'm not knocking big finish. I really enjoy big finish, but actually, I was thinking the ones I really enjoy the most are the ones with Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy or Paul McGann, where they're doing something that extends the character and develops it and takes it into situations that we have not seen before. And actually, I enjoy less the ones with Tom Baker or David Tennant, where they seem to be much more focused on recreating a style of story that just exactly fits into their era. And the premise that we've got here doesn't require them to fit a story into the era. They could be kind of development here, but I... I don't I don't think that's what this is about. I think that's partly as a as a result of it being a, a 60th anniversary special. And again, I think it's expectations, but having having Donna pop up in it, I thought would be something that was a part of a 60th anniversary special, which would be much more like, you know, something like the Day of the Doctor. And it in fact seems to be the main pull it's like it's is Catherine Tate and David Tennant and yeah. that's what's special about it being the 60th and I'm glad they're doing it I'm glad they're enjoying it and that they've still got that kind of because the, there's no doubt about it they're still really really good they're firing on all cylinders it's yeah, just I, that I agree with that it's not that special for me sorry what's special for me because Doctor Who is always about renewal is What's next? Uh, you, you know, you you did mention that it's kind of like a mini season, and I my notes actually are not quite the same. It's like it, it was a classic series in three parts. Technically, they were mostly in four parts, but you know, episode one sets you up, episode three finishes you off, and episode three is them running up and down corridors the whole time. And wow, did they do that in spades? They made the whole thing one giant <laughs> corridor. Yeah, yeah, the longest corridor. I'm sure that was to live with. Slick. So I I didn't think that could possibly be a coincidence, but uh, uh, anyway. And you say, you say, you mentioned the three-part story. And I again, I think my expectation was when I heard there were these three specials, that they were going to be a three-part story and that it was all going to be focused on why has the Doctor got this face? And nothing in this episode even begins to address the question of why has the Doctor got this face? No. And and as you mentioned, they brought up the flux. And and I think this is what they were Russ RTD was saying about, you know, we're going to address it in, in such a way that in an oblique way, um, it did. Okay, it happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is good. That means some future writer can fix it. But look in the uh Stephen Moffat two era. But uh <laughs> comes along and fixes canon. That's my job. I'm the I'm the 
I'm the repair carpenter after we've we built a kind of shaky house. We'll go. Yeah. So yeah, half the universe was in fact still destroyed. Look, I'm not I'm not keen on on the on the either of those aspects of the of the kind of chibnal mythos. But yeah. I what I'm missing, I guess, is that when Chibnall took the show over, he did something different with it. It felt new and it felt like it was unpredictable. But, and you know, so did so did RTD when he took it over. But, you know, I don't know. When I look back on when I look back on these episodes, once I've seen what the kind of Fujigatwa seasons are like, maybe I'll relax more because he'll do something incredibly radical and different and exciting and it'll get me properly fired up again. But I'm a little bit worried that we've kind of reset something yeah. here and that the show it should it should be in good health, right? I mean it's got all this Disney Disney money and uh new production and everything but why was why was no one else desperately keen to take on running it i don't hmm, i don't know i think i I, you know my guess and it is a guess is that if you were going to get a big investor like disney they needed to give them some assurances i think as we discussed i think rg in this case i know they were having trouble with it anyway but let's face it considering the budget that they were being clearly not given during the Chibnall era, is why it? would anybody want to take it on? I mean, yeah, I don't yeah, care no, how much I, you love I, Doctor Who. You're going to give me a buck ninety eight and some paper clips. I can't do this job, and so yeah. I, I can understand why it's a poison pill. You get Disney in, you had to get something in to make Disney feel comfortable with their investment, and I think that's probably it. And it, but I was wondering if that if could that be someone else? Could that be I'm someone hoping. with a a, a track record in running a television show who has a new take on Doctor Who or what Doctor Who's about. I mean, I really hope RTD has, has a new take, but yeah. Well, here's JMS's chance. Well, you know, yeah, it could it could be. I mean, obviously, I would hate that, but <laughs> it, it, it could be someone who has that kind of that kind of track record, but who hasn't had a go at Doctor Who and who might do things with the show that haven't been done before. Yeah. I have a question about uh, people in the United Kingdom. If the temperature drops rapidly, do you only notice it when you see your breath condensing or does your skin react to cold like it does mine? Because I would notice the temperature dropping rapidly without having to see my breath forming. No, we're always, we're always cold. We're always cold. That's, it's only when you see I, your breath and you realize it's really cold. Okay, so that's just a British thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it it doesn't play well. <laughs> it's like, how stupid are you, Donna? Can't you tell that it's dropping? <laughs> like, well, all right, man. I mean, it, it's it's there's a lot of kind of little details in it. The and talking about talking about doing something that's not been done before, I kind of feel like the, these are these are the episodes where. I, I I like them doing something quite experimental. So an episode that's basically just Catherine Tate and David Tennant and no one else. Terrific. But it's not and, and I and I will overlook all those kind of little details and things that go wrong if you're gonna do something ambitious and exciting like that. But it's not really the first time they've done something like this. Because no. heaven's end, right? And also, I mean, it reminded me a bit of Midnight. It's it reminded RTD me a lot of Midnight. Yeah, can, he can do, he can do these things with much less, and certainly without the budget, and he can make them more effective than he did with this. And I think what you were saying earlier about the tension building up, it I think these are these are hard hard kind of things to write because you know you are you're filling an hour with with two actors and you've and you've really got to figure out how to kind of how to play the dynamics of that to keep the the tension and excitement going because you can't just keep ramping it up for 60 minutes but having said that i i do think you're right i don't think it quite works it somehow feels like they let the air out somewhere somewhere in the middle and they don't quite get the momentum back 
Here's another one that I just want to point out here. And these are all RTD who wrote these specials, right? All three of them? Yeah. Well, apart from Star Beast. Well, but he wrote the screenplay. He he yeah. he adapted the Star Beast into what it into what it became. And and definitely what I'm about to mention is definitely RTD. He in the Star Beast, he took the sonic screwdriver to the next level yet again. And already, and then he himself in the very next episode has to get rid of it to make this story work. That is not the greatest of planning. Now, usually when you see that in a story, um, you can tell it's different writers who have different styles. They're like, oh, where's the sonic screwdriver? I left it on the TARDIS console. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, that's a writer who doesn't like the sonic screwdriver. I, I, I liked, I liked this. I liked the fact that the sonic was being used in a meaningful way and you couldn't you couldn't really fault the doctor for having left it behind no and i'm not I faulting the, the doctor they used for the it. I, i'm i kind of fault the the writer for having to do it to you know not have the 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 supersonic as we shall now call it um screwdriver uh in in the scene but that's what it felt like. It's like as soon as he stuck it in the... I presume he's still got his non-sonic screwdriver because oh, he didn't actually hope. insert that into the lock. Yeah, let's hope so. Maybe he could have used that for some... That would have been clever. Yeah. That would have been that would have been extremely clever. The Doctor definitely should have done that in this story to demonstrate that he is not just about... Or worse, you know, there was something that needed unscrewing and he couldn't because he didn't have the sonic and Donna goes, yeah, have a screwdriver in your pocket. <laughs> Uh, how quaint you know (laughs) or whatever so yeah let's ask this question wild blue yonder wtf Mm, don't know it's that's one of the details where i thought there was going to be some kind of real uh thematic resonance to to it and i still don't get it still don't get it yeah it's like it's not jolly. They're not going to war. What's it got to do with anything? So it does, in fact, make uh, it does, in fact, make a good case that this was a placeholder name. <laughs> and then at the end, they just said, uh, "I still can't come up with a name." I know. Let's have the TARDIS play that when we land and and comes back. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But there's there is substantial dialogue within the episode that relates to it. So it's not it's not throwaway stuff. But it doesn't connect with anything. Okay. That feel that felt to me like um, that felt to me like again. Try to put my mind in the writer's position. That's something you want to say. That's some that's some cool thought that occurred to you. That you go, oh, you know, that's the thing that people don't think about. This isn't really a jolly song. It's a nasty song, and and I want to say that. I want to make that point. And we know RTD's definitely got an anti-military bent, just based on what he did with Unit. Um, but I felt like he wanted to get that dialogue in there, but it doesn't fit. It doesn't have any thematic, as you say, tie in with this thing. I guess you could argue that you're out in the middle of nowhere. That is the wild blue yonder, but honestly, it's the wild black yonder. And I couldn't find any significance to that song for the British. I mean, it is, as far as I can tell, absolutely 100% a creation by contest for the U.S. Army Air Corps in the 1940s. I've never heard of it. Oh, you've never heard of it? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll run it. the... I've heard that song so many times. It's the official song of the U.S. Air Force and has been since the 40s, which when it was the Army Air Corps. I went through the lyrics to see if there was anything that if you knew the lyrics, and I'll just give you the first vo- verse here. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. Oh, you're not going to sing? I'm not going to sing. <laughs> All right, fun. Here they come, zooming to meet our thunder. Adam, boys, give her the gun. Give her the gun. Down we die, spouting our flames from under. Off with one hell of a roar. We live in fame or go down in flame. Hey, nothing will stop the Army Air Corps. There you go. Bravo. Encore. I don't know the second verse, but I knew the first verse pretty well as a kid. Um, And I knew it as Army Air Corps, too, because that's the way my dad would sing it. And he was in the Navy, but he liked the song. But 
thought it was a jolly old song. But it's, I, I couldn't find anything. I did look through the other lyrics and I don't see anything that could make you, it's all, it's all this, you know? We built planes, we do stuff, we go out and meet the enemy, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like it just, it just doesn't make any sense. And unless, you know, he's setting up something in, in Shooty Gatwa's season where the TARDIS plays a different song every time they land, which <laughs> I'm going to hate. Well, just going to, yeah. well, I'm just going to go right now. I mean that could be that could be cool, that could be cool if it chooses more interesting songs. It's just I don't know why it's chosen this song. Yeah, and I I mean I think you, it's a cool idea. You're right, but I expected more from RCD in terms of there being some real kind of relevance of this particular theme. And he he's he's using it. I think I mean it's not just a cool idea. He's using it because he wants to do the work around establishing Donna's relationship with Wilf. And, you know, he, he plays that into it. But yeah, I, I, I was expecting, I was expecting something more. And I, I kind of thought at the beginning of the episode, right, this is going to come back in some way. And then when I watched it the second time, I was thinking, what did I miss? Did I, did I miss something? Cause I don't remember there being anything that, kind of resonated with the theme there but from second no. viewing i didn't pick it up either so i don't know it it seems to be without rhyme nor reason in the story except to give it a title that doesn't give anything away but i don't know what title you could give this that would give something away <laughs> the not not things the you know spacecraft at the edge of the universe it still doesn't give anything away no but it's no. It just Okay, but and, and you know, my wife and I talked this over again, and she did pick up. She learned something from uh, our discussion about the Star Beast, and that was uh, because she would ask me questions, and then she'd go, "Oh, right, right, don't think." I go, "Yeah, there you go, <laughs> don't, don't think." They literally say, "Don't think," in that well, you know, calm they, down they and do. stop thinking. Yes, they do say that. <laughs> so. Uh, but I don't think that it's possible for him to have retroactively heard the podcast and then um, carried no, that somehow, back in time somehow and incorporated you have, it. You have the power of foresight to to know this would become the theme. Maybe that's it. This is precognition, and I just didn't realize in the Centauri way. So it was of absolute no use to me whatsoever. But it was right. <laughs> um, so I get the idea that the more the Doctor thinks, and the more Donna thinks. The more, I guess, basically data that the the not things have so that they can create a more accurate replica. I get that part. So slow it down. I don't understand why the ship had to do this slowly. I uh, and and nor why did all the panels no. have to turn and flop and swig and reconfigure. I mean, mm, apart from it. the fact that you're showing off your money. Yeah. They had to spend the money on something and they weren't spending on the cost. Yes. Yes. So if we have this surplus budget, what can we do? Uh I know. Lots of lots of spaceship stuff. No, I, I don't I don't understand that that aspect of the plot exactly. I, I tried to focus on it a bit more the second time and I I ca- I kind of appreciated that the kind of thinking had to be done slowly and so I guess the captain set something up that was so not obvious that they wouldn't be able to put it, they wouldn't be able to figure it out and wouldn't have figured it out if the doctor hadn't turned up. But I think the thing that, again, maybe makes this episode less successful than, you know, some of those other more, uh, more, well, some of those other equally ambitious episodes is that I didn't really understand what it was saying. Well, you know, what's it saying about thinking and about is it that we all think too much and we should we should calm down more in our lives? Or, you know, what's the moral message of that part of the story? Because we obviously weren't getting the moral message about the jolly-sounding song, song being actually going to war. So I was looking for my morals elsewhere. And I couldn't really figure it out there either. It's always seemed to me quite a good thing that the Doctor is a fast thinker, that he's... Yeah. You know, he... he 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 puts things together. He has insights. Things kind of flash in his brain, and that's why he talks fast. And 
that's all kind of quite exciting. And I get that for someone like that, it'd be very difficult for them if they had were put in a position where they had to calm down. But I wasn't really sure, A, what that would tell us. And B, anyway, they didn't really kind of, they, di they didn't commit to that. There was about, you know, 10 seconds of him sort of saying, I mustn't think, I mustn't think, I mustn't think. And then he just carried on thinking and obviously screwed everything up. So I don't know what it was telling us. Yeah, they're, they're using his, they're using his strengths against him. It's, uh, it's not thing jujitsu. I'm saying, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, didn't think there was any moral aspect to that thread. I just thought that was supposed to, uh, okay, uh, here's another one. But it one. still leaves me wondering what is this episode about? Yeah, well, so he's thinking, so it is turning, the, the doctor thinks very fast. That's the worst thing that you could possibly do. This is an opportunity for Donna to save the day who is not so good a thinker. And and I'm not busting on Donna's chops there. It's just simply Donna is not as good a thinker as the doctor. The, no one is as good a thinker as the doctor in this show. So, you know, maybe close, but but so there there was an opportunity for Donna to shine, but she didn't. Well, it, well, no, she didn't. That was the thing. And there was this thing about humans being able to hold two mutually contradictory ideas at the same time. But I didn't. Also, not a really... good thing. And really see where that was going either. So, yeah, there were there were there were lots of little things in this that I I kind of liked. It's it, but they didn't add up to the sum of their parts. I mean, I really liked the speech that the doctor was giving to one of the things about wondering what has, what the TARDIS did when the hostile action displacement system kicked in, because of course it could be a way for hundreds of years and I love that little story about there being a tribe worshipping it and then a city growing up and then a city collapsing and everything and I'm looking forward to when someone makes an animation of all of that and sticks it on YouTube with the doctor's narration over it <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be all right now there, there is another possibility maybe you know we, we have to give it we have to give the possibility to this we have complained and I know we didn't do the Russell T. Davies there, but I know that we have complained so much about Bad Wolf over the years, or at least I have, certainly Ben has, um, about how lame that story arc was, how illogical that story, how ill-planned that story arc was. It's like, well, it just pop Bad Wolf up wherever we need it, and so we just have that that thing, and then I'll I'll sort it out in the end. Maybe all this stuff is set up for next time. Maybe the humans well, holding two contrary positions. Maybe uh, uh, the wild blue yonder or something about that. Maybe, you know, all of those things. Maybe that is set up for the next episode. And then maybe this one would have some rewatch value when you come back to it and you go, oh. It could, it could be. But I, I mean, I think, I think the thing where we actually have had that was when Beep talks about the boss. And that's yep. obviously a setup. The the thing about the thing that's occurred to me there is that maybe we won't find out in the trilogy. Maybe that's a shooty, a shooty thing, two thing, or something. And it's just going to go think, on more. I don't. I don't think RTD will go that long. I don't think he's got that. I, I don't think he has that mindset. And I'm that's I'm not busting on him. It's just I don't think he plans a game two or three years down the line. I I think he's he's in the in the moment kind of writer. Um, I will say this had the absolute best. Hey, podcasters don't fact check the writer sequence ever. And that is, you don't have the math. Don't, don't tell me it's impossible. You just don't understand the math yet. So you little humans go away. <laughs> that was, I was amused by that. Speaking of the hads, if those two had perfectly replicated the Doctor and then disposed of the Doctor and Donna, would the TARDIS think the danger was over and even bother to come back? Well, that that seems to be what the Doctor believes. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know whether that kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't know. We don't really get that much information about what this replication process actually involves. And if they, if they were able to make a proper copy, would they actually be the Doctor and Donna? And then would they behave differently? Would they behave like the Doctor and Donna? Would they become so like them 
that they would behave like them. Because if they don't, then they're not. I mean, don't forget that there, there's a similar thing in Heaven Sent because the Doctor is being teleported. Yeah. So you're getting... He's, it's, it is, it's a copy. It is a copy. The Doctor we've got now is a copy, although one of my kind of feelings about David Tennant now is that it doesn't feel like he was ever Peter Capaldi. Yeah. But well, anyway, well when he was Peter I mean, Capaldi, he, he, he was copied. Actually, so. they, they, they do seem to be trying to imply that he's, he's different because he was Jodie Whittaker, though, occasionally. It's definitely he's more feminine. Yeah, I mean, I find it easier to believe he was... Uh, it, it's easier to believe he was Jodie Whittaker because we saw Jodie Whittaker regenerate into him. But... I don't know. It was one of those. It was one of those things where I kind oh. of, I particularly liked the fact that with David Tennant's original performance, it felt, and you know, because he's a complete Uber fan, that he was incorporating a little bit of every other actor who played it before him into his performance. Mm-hmm. But he should have I don't incorporated know that he's some of the doing that now. I don't know he could do that now because he's already kind of established his performance as the Doctor, and he he can't add in a bit of Matt Smith kind of fooling Gangling. around or or um, Capaldi frowning or... Tensity, yeah. Yeah. Or Jody oh, imitating yeah. David Tennant. I think <laughs> that's easier to incorporate, so maybe that's another reason why I feel that that's there. You know, they've, 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 they've kind of twice in this, in this, in these two episodes, we have the scene where the doctor says, oh, I love somebody. And say, oh, is that how I talk now? Which is, is, and then in this episode, it's like, he was hot. Ooh, is that how I am now? And Don is like, yeah, basically you've always been just a hair's breadth from gay. She, the, not those words, but that's exactly what yeah. she says. And it's like, oh, that's setting up shooty. Just like when Capaldi says, yeah, maybe next time I'll be a woman. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I remember Tom Baker saying next time I might be a woman. So, well, we we'll have, we'll have to come back to that one. Yeah, well, but I'm I'm putting it here. I I think that's where we're going. I don't know how that would equip. I don't know what that would mean for a character who is basically sexless, asexual. Yeah. Let's see what else do we have. Oh, um, behind the scene, I know we talked about this. I know I mentioned how a uh, huge fan I am of the volume walls and what they can do with those. Uh, for special effects. I watched the behind the scenes on this. They absolutely do not have a volume wall. The uh, spaceship was green screen, uh, you know, practical set with green screen and then uh, projected behind it. Uh, And the TARDIS set is that honking stupidly big. It's an absolute ginormous aircraft hangar size physical set. It's like, wow. Yeah. I still hate it. It's still a. I, I don't hate it. I like the. I like the aesthetic of it. I do not like the size of it. The size of it is so dumb. <laughs> Look, it's just. It's just dumb. I know the TARDIS has infinite space, but what good is that space? It has nothing in it, and of course, he could fill it with furniture again. But actually, no, because it's ramps and rails. Mostly, it's empty space between the platforms and an empty volume. It it just seems like a, a a design choice to make it look big. Finally, go oh the TARDIS big. I you know what I like to think the TARDIS is big. I like them to occasionally go into the TARDIS and actually be amazed at how infinite is not journey to the center of the TARDIS but other instances you know it's it's a it's an interesting day when you can say yeah you know I mean they definitely did it better in invasion of time (laughs) true right I mean yes in in the invasion of time the TARDIS is really eccentric you're wandering around back there going and going this is just bizarre yes the brick walls were perhaps should have been covered up (laughs) Again, no, the but TARDIS I'm not. Is I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue that the TARDIS in the Invasion of Time is not better than this TARDIS. So, and I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. I, there are, and um, Legopolis has a certain amount of that yeah kind of effect. 
which is achieved by basically taking the standard TARDIS dress, TARDIS set and redressing it in different ways. But it creates the same illusion and you don't need it to be in your face. And I'd also think you don't need the TARDIS to be that big for it to be bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It only needs to be, well, big enough to get the job done in the control room. It needs to be visibly, it needs to be visibly bigger, right? I mean, I was going to say it only needs to be a centimeter bigger, but it need it needs to be visibly bigger. But as soon as the interior dimensions are twice the exterior dimensions, you spot that. Whereas yeah. now they're, what? I, I mean, I don't, you could get hundreds and hundreds of exterior TARDISes into that space. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a poor choice. It's a poor choice. I, I, I don't hate the look. But I hate the size, and and the size informs the look to some degree. So, hopefully, and and I did hear something where uh, David Tennant did a tour of the TARDIS set on camera. It's one of the behind the scenes where he saw it for the first time when they were still building it, and he did say something to the effect of, "At least I I get it before I have to turn this set over to Shooty." So, I'm pretty sure that's the ongoing set. I'm not surprised. It's so big. They could not possibly have amortized the the expense of building it and then rebuilding it. They just couldn't. No. I mean, hopefully they'll no. take the coffee maker out, you know, maybe put it well, in. I think, a, I think a, that would be that would be a, a relatively cost effective um, uh, adjustment, given that it will save them lots of money in explosions and fire special effects. But yeah. I guess I'd rather they kept Jodie Whittaker's TARDIS interior for the oh, specials. God, no. Oh, <laughs> I think uh. if they if they kept kept them for the specials, and then this had been this had been the new aesthetic going along with Shooty and his you know very slick threads and all that. Maybe I maybe I could have coped with it. I don't know. I guess I guess you know once it once I've got used to him in it, we can come back to that question and see how I'm getting old, or if I'm still nursing a grudge. Again, don't think, but you know I I can't say that there's a good reason for it because the Doctor regenerates at the end of Parting of Ways. He's in the TARDIS, boom, he regenerates. The TARDIS is fine, but when he regenerates at the end of David Tennant's era, and whatever that story was. Uh, he regenerates so strongly he blows up the TARDIS. Okay, that's why we change TARDI desktop themes. That's why we change desktop themes going from Tenet to, to Smith. Also, when Smith regenerated, boom, bang, boom. But, and yet... No, no. Didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't. That's right. No, Smith. He did not. Smith to Capaldi, TARDIS stayed the same. That's right. It did. And he didn't, he didn't so... But when Whitaker went she was outside. She was outside. And absolutely no damage to this artist should have been there at all. It should be the same. No. And I can't, I can't, I can't remember why it changed for the snowmen either. I think, I think that was implied that Matt Smith was just tinkering. Right. He'd been living up in the clouds for a long, long time. And he'd just been tinkering around with it. I, I, I prefer that, if I'm honest. I prefer that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or he walks around and finds another control room somewhere back next to the boot cupboard. Yeah. I mean, I think Moffat has has to take some of the blame here for the fact that he... I mean, I, I assume it was his choice to have a new TARDIS interior at the start of his run as, as showrunner. But then he also changed it during his run as showrunner. And so the sense of there being a, a TARDIS set that has some longevity, because... You know, it didn't change that much between 1963 and 1989. That's kind of gone now. No, occasional console change, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's like, yeah, we've got we've got, we've got to have a new off. one with every Doctor and possibly two. Yeah, the only good thing about changing it is sometimes you get a really awful TARDIS and they don't last long. <clears throat> Jodie Whittaker's TARDIS, which is the worst ever. Well, it was. No, it still works. <laughs> Um, I don't know that I have anything else about this episode. I got a couple of things. Okay, I'll I'll alternate between the things that I like and the things I didn't. So, one of the things I liked, um, and this 
touches on the referring back to previous episodes things, well, I think it's a lot more oblique than the references to the flux and the timeless child. But I'm pretty sure there's a reference to kill the moon in there because Donna says that one of the things Sean always complains about when he's watching sci-fi films is where does all the extra mass come from? And do you remember what we said about kill the moon? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, okay, maybe. Let me ask Russell this question. T. Davis was sitting there watching that thinking, where, you know, when I get my hands back on the show, I'll say what I think about that piece of nonsense. Okay, then let, let me ask this question. Or let me ask the question to physicists out there in the head. Uh, are we talking, obviously, you're converting heat to mass in this. Is that any more possible? I don't think it is. You're not asking me, are you? You're asking the physicists. Are we, are we going to well, sit here I'm, and wait I'm asking them? you. Are you gonna, yeah. You, <laughs> well, if you a, haven't thought about it, maybe, Mastodon. May, maybe you do. You went to the same, uh, I don't know, you, you work at the same university where a friend of mine who is a physicist got his degree. So, I mean, I, I, <laughs> like, but I haven't asked him. But, uh, uh, yeah, I thought maybe I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that, but I think the point the point about the line is that it's not a poke at this episode. It is a poke at where it is very obviously completely implausible, and that is kill the moon. It's just you don't have the math. <laughs> well, that would be that would be a better answer. That would be a better answer. <laughs> okay, let 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 me move on to something that I was less keen on, and that okay. was the cold open. I. There were a lot of reasons I didn't like it. Oh, yeah. it wasn't like awful. It was just when you add up all the thing, all the things. I'm like, oh, why was thing there? I mean, one thing is that it felt like the end of the Star Beast leads right into the post credits of Wild Blue Yonder. The TARDIS is exploding, and the doors fly open, and a blast of flame comes out. I think it would have been better if it had just gone straight through with the continuity there. So that's one thing. Another thing is, and, you know, I will complain about these things, although I think the chance of them being ever given any attention is is minimal. But in the big finish world, Mm -hmm. we do already have an Isaac Newton, and he's played by David Warner extremely brilliantly. And he's characterized completely differently from this Newton. I was going to say, I believe Newton was a particularly unpleasant human being. Yeah, this guy is kind of like going out and skipping in the meadows and sitting under the apple tree on a sunny day. And he's definitely a romance novel cover hair guy. So, So, yeah, I wasn't keen on that. I also wasn't keen on the fact that the whole thing just felt like it was the reject from the children in need skit because yeah. he came up with a better idea and he didn't want to chuck this one out and then I did at some point during the episode think actually is it more than that is the fact that time appears to have been changed because there are allusions to this they have Mavity. changed time Mavity is that going to be significant and it hasn't been significant and I cannot believe I know you're going to say oh maybe this is something you tie up in the next episode and we'll look or in the Shuti Gatwa season we'll look back on this and think ah this is him cleverly laying um the the foundations for some intricate (laughs) i have i have dreams of hopes that he has clever laying of plans but that's moffat's forte i don't think that we are going to hear and we're going to never going to hear about mavity ever again that's what i think i agree i think we're never going to hear it again let me finish my my little list of uh things with another positive thing we talked about Murray Gold last time. I'm not any keener on the theme tunes and everything, but the music, the incidental music in this episode is not like anything I've heard him do before. And so Silver Screen, I'm sure they're listening. Silver Screen, we need a 60th anniversary special CD release, please. I am going to say that I, uh, in a way, would also say that it's not like anything he's done before because I didn't hear a single note of it. Honestly, that crossed my mind uh, yesterday. I was like, "Oh yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't actually hear any music at all." I'm sure it was there, but it wasn't. It it's didn't stand out anyway. Yeah. 
it didn't catch my ear. So funny thing, I'm going to take a digression here just briefly. I think I told you that uh, in Solar Screen, we can bring that uh, to the reporter. They they put out a, an album for Jody Whittaker's first year, which I Is got. It? And I, I do I, actually I like Sega Nakanola's theme song. I, I think that's a good I love Doctor it. theme song. I like the whole CD. The theme is excellent. It's really good. The rest of the CD to me, when I'm listening to it in my car, I, I've said this before, makes me think that maybe there's something wrong with my car. I, <laughs> I don't hear it as music. Yeah. I hear it as as noises that are like wrong. They're just wrong. The Blyton legacy. But I went on looking, I, I was looking on Silver Screen this past week, looking at all the Doctor Who, because they have a Doctor Who section, going, oh, I didn't know they put that one out. Oh, I didn't know they put that one out. And oh, I found tell out they me they put later. the last Peter Capaldi season out. I don't believe they put the last season of Peter no. Capaldi out, but I, they definitely did put out the last season of Jodie Whittaker. And because oh, yeah. I'm a completist, I, I added that to my collection, and I, we were in the car, and one of those themes came up, and I actually heard it. So it was like, oh, maybe he improved with seasons X and beyond still wasn't like this is yeah yeah this there's no uh there's no i am the doctor there or no but he's, he's very different yeah he's very different and, and it kind of po- po- poking at carrie blyton or whoever i mean <laughs> the thing about the early years of the show was i mean obviously dudley simpson did a lot of stuff but there was there were different composers on it and so I I quite appreciate the fact that we've we have had someone else, you know, besides besides Murray Gold. Much as I love Murray Gold, again, it's about hearing someone else do something different. And I don't suppose it's ever going to happen, but it made me think oh, it would be quite nice if we could have different composers coming in and you know doing well, maybe not individual episodes, but different seasons or something. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Um, you, you talk about how. One of the appeals to Doctor Who is the is the change and what's coming next, and and I'm I'm going to stand in a little bit of the nostalgia uh, zone. I don't I don't right. need it to change huge amounts. It's got to change some. But you know, whenever oh, yeah, you make no. a big change, whenever you make a big change, sometimes you can just make you can bring somebody and they can just do absolutely the worst possible thing. <clears throat> Jodie Whittaker's era, and 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 you can destroy what you're trying to preserve. Okay, fine. But this happens when you hire new people and you hire, you yeah. know, as time goes on. This, these things will just ultimately happen because even people who are trying to ape the style of previous shows will introduce their own changes to it. It, it, is, it is inevitable that it will happen to some degree. Nobody is so perfect that they can hold it in stasis forever. But it is also a thing that, artists like to put their own stamp on things so there is a there is a mindset that says when you come back and do something you have to come back and do it differently this is why we get such you know awful things like the brady bunch movie or we we get people who come in and and 20 years later revive something and just make an absolute ruin of it because they they want they want it to be something a new interpretation a new that mindset prevails even on individual people. And I felt like Murray Gold did really well during the RTD era. And then he did so much better during the Stephen Moffat era because he tried to reinvent the sound, whether or not that was from external arguments or not. He did. Then when he went to the Capaldi era, I felt like he'd run out of options. Um, it's it's okay music, but it does not build upon Matt Smith era music. It did not it did not exceed the Matt Smith era music. Murray Gold yeah, has run nice. his course. Composers like John Horner, who has a lot of big films out there, I can spot his music in every single film because he returns to the same sound over and over again. Mm-hmm. And like he does not reinvent himself, but of course, when you're making completely different movies and they've got the same soundtrack, you're kind of like, huh, 
Oh, aliens sounds just like Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Ugh. And I don't know, but I think Murray, at least Murray's been given a rest. Yeah, I know. No, I absolutely know what you mean. If if you hear John Barry on the radio, you know it's John Barry. If you hear John Williams on the radio, yes. you know it's John Williams. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, trying to reinvent it, you've only got so much in the tank. And I don't know. I, I, I think it was time for Murray to move on. I don't have anything against the music we heard in the specials this episode, notwithstanding, because I didn't hear it. But <laughs> like, well, I, well, I was because I, I I, I'm coming back. That was the one that I was like, oh, I'm not sure Murray should come back. Uh, RTD, maybe he's got a second wind. Maybe he's going to hire. A, he's going to hire a bunch of other writers, hopefully. So we only have to worry about, you know, three or four episodes a year that are RTDs. And then six others by as showrunner, he has a huge influence. But that's not the same as actually having to sit down and come up with new ideas. That's coming up with like, I think this idea could work better if you did this or if you if you went there. I mean, so. I, I I didn't know about that, but I will take the point that Murray Gold has worked on the show for a lot longer than RTD did. At too. I also I also think you've you've put in mind for me something else about the way that Stephen Moffat really pushed changing the show for his own era. Like, not it's not a question of coming back and reinventing it. He was reinventing it all the time in a way that I don't think RTD actually did. And I, I appreciated that, again, because I felt like it, it, it was, rather than allowing it... To, because he was showrunner for a long time off there, rather than allowing it to be diminishing returns, like a slightly paler version of what had had, had been done before. He he started off very much taking RTD's template for a season and doing his own version of that, which was great. But then he started doing different things. And when Matt Smith came in, he had this fairy tale idea. And when Peter Feldy came in, he had this whole thing about whether he was a good man. And argue about whether that was effective but it was it was something different and he mixed up whether there were going to be one parters or two parters or a mix of one and two parters and i think all of those things brought something new all of the time and i hope that rtd is going to bring so you know as well as having some new stories to tell himself is going to bring something new to the way he runs the show yeah well you know Last time when RTD came in, everyone said, you know, he's, he's, he's got his gay agenda, which was, you know, showing people who were gay in stories. I think this time, I think they'll be right. I think that's, I think that's where he's planted his flag. I think, I think, and, and not necessarily that, but in other words, I think he's planted his flag on representation and that is going to be yeah. the theme throughout all of this era he is going to make that first foremost and most important aspect of this era this is this is what he wants to say i have this well feeling. i think i'm not sure it's what he wants to say because it's what he does it's what he has always really done and i and i think you couldn't he couldn't he couldn't do anything without doing that really yeah i i just think that he's got more leeway now but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that in it. I'm not sure that in itself is well. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't give you the show on its own. It gives it an energy, definitely. And it did. You know, it did that back in 2005. You know, the kind of effect of having Captain Jack in the show was that. I'm sure it's not like anyone arguing it's the factor, but I did see quite persuasive case made that one of the many factors that led to gay marriage being legalized in this country was Doctor Who and the fact that characters were being portrayed so that a kind of mass viewing audience would just see them see this as normal so I I you know I think I think it's important I think there's a there's something that doing that adds to the show but I don't know that that is going to be I don't know that that's going to be everything. In the same way that with Chibnall, it wasn't everything. He massively, massively increased the diversity of the writership of the show. But that wasn't 
I don't know that you'd look back on his run and say that was the defining characteristic. It was one of the key characteristics, undoubtedly. But it's not what made the show what it was when he was running it, I don't think. Mm. Well, we shall see. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed that the BBC, well, not the BBC, well, maybe the BBC. It comes to the BBC Doctor Who YouTube channel. They've been putting out lots of videos about, oh, here's what you need to know about catching up with the Doctor and, you know, if you're if you're new to Doctor Who and this, that, and the other. And there is one thing that is absolutely certain. They have changed the Doctor's pronouns to they. Yeah. In all official oh. Doctor Who Because on screen, uh, videos. Yeah, but when they refer... And then that's what they do. And then that's what... Uh, yeah, they're, they're using it. it. It has been in several of the videos that they've put out to explain Doctor Who uh, on, on the net. So it's like, uh, okay, that's a conscious choice. I mean, I, I, I've always kind of, I've, when we've been talking about the show, I've kind of gone with using the pronouns for the gender of the Doctor at the time of the show that we're talking about. But it definitely becomes a lot more difficult to do that when you're talking about anything kind of much more general about, you know, the, the Doctor over their whole life kind of thing. You you can't like you can't say the doctor over his whole life. You can't really say the doctor over her whole life. Or you can, and you're going to refer to the one that will make sense in context in the moment. But yeah, well, yeah. I mean it, that, and, and that's what I that's what I mean. That's what I've kind of been doing, where it's very, very obviously focused on a discussion around a particular episode or whatever. But when you start talking about all the all the instances, I don't know, where the doctor faced the Daleks or whatever. You could be saying he did this one minute and she did that one minute. Except there's the 10 million other doctors we don't know about. <laughs> the timeless child now. So maybe they fought the Daleks well, so many they times. Met the Daleks. I'm sure. Uh... <laughs> That's just another flaw with the whole concept of creating all those extra doctors and having a TARDIS that looks like a. Don't get me started. Don't get me started with how poorly thought out that was. Uh, we can talk about how poorly thought out this was, but I, I, any others, any other items? I know that was your list. That was my list. All right. Well, next time the even worse named episode, the giggle. Well, looks like it's going to be a laugh. Ah, well, I guess it was worth it for that. It's a celebration. It's the celebration. Remember 60 years of the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at FusionPatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. <laughs>